Good evening, everyone. I've <coughs> uh, just uh, come back from uh, the uh, Anahaina uh, Temple, where we had a, a very nice group down there uh, to um, learn this uh, Vipassana meditation. Some uh, older students, but a number of newer students. So that was uh, very heartening, I think. But, um, I'm trying. <laughs> I think you're wearing me out. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you can try it if you want. Yeah, see? <laughs> Sorry, brother. Yeah, no, no, good, good, thanks. Yeah. Let's, let's see how it goes. See, my voice is going, so. Yeah. I'm not used to these things, so. I don't know how you do it. How's that? Can you hear that? Oh, I can hear it, I can hear it. <laughs> Sounds a bit strange, actually. Yeah. Anyhow. The, um, <coughs> I was thinking about it when I was down at the uh, at that uh, Anahina Temple, which I particularly like going to. It's got the most beautiful little temple down there, and um, it feels like a real I don't know why it feels like it to me, but a real Dharma atmosphere for some reason. I really enjoy it a lot, and uh, somehow the Dharma comes out of you down there. It's good. But I started off talking about how amazing it was that, um, you know, 2,600 years ago, the Buddha uh, became enlightened and was able to uh, teach this Vipassana meditation uh, to, for 45 years as he roamed around India and tranquility meditation as well. But essentially uh, Vipassana and then here we are sitting in Anahaina, Upper Palolo, uh, practicing uh, this meditation technique and cultivating, the, um, uh, cultivating our awareness, which is really the point of the whole process of meditation, is to become more aware. Now, why do we need to be more aware? That's a good question. Aren't we aware enough? Are we? Well, no, we're not. Because if we were, of course we have a modicum of awareness. We wouldn't be able to function in the world if we didn't have awareness of this and that. Um, you know, we know not to put our hand on a hot fire. That's some kind of awareness. But what we don't know is how to take the hot coal out of the mind. And this is why we need to have uh, cultivation of awareness and the development of awareness through the practice of Satipatthana, through the practice of Vipassana meditation. Because, as it said, um, 
Everyone wants happiness. I mentioned this. Uh, no one wants to be unhappy. Unhappy. We all want some happiness. We all want peace of mind, don't we? And even as human beings, but also the insects and the animals uh, and the uh, devas from the other realms and even those from the lower realms, as Mahasi talked about this morning, want happiness. Everyone wants happiness. But it's a difficult commodity to find, isn't it? As we roam around in our everyday life situations, it is not often uh, that the mind attains to um, some level of uh, peacefulness and tranquility, is it? There may be moments, but very short-lived moments. But still we keep trying. And you know, we do all the things that we think are going to give us happiness. You know, I'm... Uh, a senior citizen now, but I still think that I can catch the perfect wave, which will give me perfect happiness. <laughs> and I'm a mad paddler. <laughs> you know, if those young kids get in the way, craving, look out, kids, <laughs> here they come. Because <laughs> I'm full of craving for the perfect wave. How many waves have I caught in my life? Thousands and thousands, you know, but still I search after the perfect wave, travelling the world. <laughs> you think I come here to teach Dhamma, right? <laughs> but the, you know, my eyes on Waikiki, <laughs> looking for that perfect wave to give me happiness. And we want a perfect relationship, we want a perfect job, we want perfect children. We want perfect pets. We want to have a perfect life in whatever we're interested in doing. Uh, you know, uh, Travelling, uh, going to the symphony, movies, whatever we like to do. And our conversation is usually around these topics, something of interest to us. But still in all, the mind is not completely happy. That happiness that the Buddha talked about there is the happiness of the householder life. And um, I mentioned this on the first night, that the Buddha did not denounce this at all. In fact, he said that the household life can bring uh, many benefits and many happinesses. Um, but it, it has pitfalls, as we all know. And the temp the, uh, it's, its temporary nature is the greatest pitfall. And the happiness of the household life does not last very long. Um, recently, and we all, um, we all know this one for sure, you know, that in our life we'll come across loss, we'll come across praise, we'll come across blame, many things, but especially loss we come across in some form or other. All of us will experience this. Uh, recently, uh, I had an experience uh, which taught me about this uh, once again. 
And it's a very, I'm sure everyone's been through this one, it's just a minimal experience. But for me it was quite um, significant. Um, it was to do with my cat. <laughs> of all things, my cat. I've mentioned on a number of retreats, in fact every retreat I go to, Bliss gets a mention, because she was the, uh, she was a 17-year-old, long-haired, black, and had been with me since a small kitten. And uh, she was Mara in disguise, I'm sure, uh, because many times when I was trying to meditate, she would show me that I still had many lifetimes to go. <laughs> and she was a character, had a real personality. And um, about four or five weeks ago, uh, she started, well even before that, she became quite ill and um, for about three months and we couldn't work out what was the matter with her. And finally they did some scans and it turned out she had a uh, brain tumour. And so the, um, you know, on her last uh, days, she became incredibly bad. And I felt exceedingly sorry for her and a great compassion for her. So off we went to the vet. Um, and uh, the vet was uh, really kind, as vets tend to be. And uh, we stood there as and held her down as he put her down. I then brought her back to my house which I uh, have a very uh, good karma with my house because I have a 30-foot Bodhi tree in the backyard, which I was able to bring the seeds back. One of the monks in Gaya gave me some seeds and we planted, uh, we grew these saplings 20-odd uh, years ago now, and now I have this huge Bodhi tree which could become a problem. <laughs> but at the moment it's doing okay. It hasn't overtaken the house. It'll be like Anchor Watt at some point, you know, and take over the whole, the whole property, I'm sure. So I buried Bliss underneath the Bodhi tree with a few friends and uh, chanted a little and lit incense for seven days. And I could feel the welling up as we all do, of sorrow and sadness for that moment. And then uh, it passed, uh, not lasting for too long, but still and all there's a, a space in you that misses that kind of companionship, isn't it? And so uh, the house is much more peaceful, I have to say. Uh, there's no defilements there, except my own mind. And bliss is not there to disturb me. But I miss that disturbance. And um, it's taught me a good lesson uh, about loss. Even a small being such as bliss can teach you the nature of um, pain in the world and the unsatisfactory nature of this impermanent situation that we live in. So awareness is extremely important because once we develop and cultivate our awareness through the practice of mindfulness and concentration, uh, what I found was 
one of the benefits is that the uh, duration of the torment in the mind is shortened because you're able to catch it more quickly as it comes in and just merely observe without trying to push anything away or grab onto anything. Uh, perhaps a little bit, but it's not as much as previously. And so the hot coals of uh, craving and desire that we hold in our minds are limited. Um, they talk about... Um, so the loss of bliss, even though there was a welling up of grief, uh, did not last for that long. Um, and then I felt great compassion for bliss and I send uh, Meta to the next bliss. <laughs> what her next life is, I say. You've been a good girl. I've never seen you kill a bird. So you're going to be definitely reborn in the human realm. <laughs> and I would tell her this. So hopefully she'll have a good uh, birth. But many things that we have to face in life that are concerned with loss are many <laughs> things we have to face in life that are concerned with blame or praise. Isn't that the case? Loss and blame and praise. There's others, but I can't quite think of what they are now. Um, and this is how the life situation is. But still and all, we don't really see it. We still ch charge after the perfect wave. Even when we get wiped out many times, you know, we're back for another lot. How silly are we? Really? Wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say? I could go out at Waimea and nearly die, and I'd probably go out again. That's how stupid I am. <laughs> Something like that is how we are in life. And we never really learn the lesson. But with mindfulness training, you know, we can start to understand at least a little bit until we move along the path more, that there is something else. And we can start to become aware of the defilements in the mind. You know, this word defilements, it's a word that is uh, not used very much in the West. It's uh, often used in early translations of Buddhist um, thinking. But I love the word because... It really describes the torments in the mind and the defilements in the mind. Nowadays, they're using words like the... This came, I think, from the Dalai Lama, really. And I don't know where he heard it from, probably from Danny Goleman or one of those. The destructive emotions in the mind, the mental irritations in the mind, the negative tendencies in the mind. But I like the word, the old-fashioned word, of defilement in the mind. Because it takes away from our peace. These states of mind take away from our peace of mind. Now, the aim really of Vipassana meditation is to cultivate awareness, but it's coupled with or what's added on to that is understanding and wisdom. So, awareness, as one famous Sayadaw in Burma, Sayadaw Utejaniya, would say, is not enough. If it's not 
got the component of understanding uh, coupled to it, then it's of no use to us. So understanding is really uh, the factor uh, that frees the mind from being caught up with these defilements. In Burma, they say that the aim of the meditation practice is to purify the mind. I mentioned this, the seven stages of purification as a roadmap, as a path. And um, they talk about it as purifying the mind from defilement, the kalesas of the mind. In the Pali, defilement is called kalesa. So purifying. Now what are kalesas? Well, right back to the basic Buddhist teachings, the kalesas are mentioned. Uh, because the Buddha talked about the root cause of suffering. And he said that the root cause of suffering in the mind is three in number, the main ones. And everything else um, revolves or emanates out of these three. And those three are greed and hatred, ill will, and delusion, or not knowing how things actually are. Uh, So those three, greed... Now, when you look at it and you take a, uh, a proper, you have a proper perspective on this, you can see that greed, for example, greed or craving, is really, it's really true. Because when we look at our lives, the cause of unhappiness is to do with greed. Every time we see, hear, taste, smell, touch, think, it's something to do with greed. It's either wanting to push it away or wanting to grab onto it, which is both greed. Craving is in those two forms. Wanting to get, wanting to push away. So we see a sound, uh, we, sorry, we hear a sound, and we like it. A smell that we don't like, we don't, we don't like it. Mm-hmm. And the whole day is spent dealing with greed. Greed, hatred and delusion, but especially greed and craving. Isn't that the case? If you look at it correctly and look at it with honesty, you will see that the Buddha was absolutely correct. And that's how we spend most of our moments of life, is in, within greed. Ill will. Someone asked me ill will and anger. Robert asked me about anger and how does anger arise in the mind today? Well, it comes from greed. Because we don't like something, because we don't like something, we react in some way to it. And often that's with anger. In different degrees. It might be just minor irritation or aversion, judgments, etc., or it can be full-blown anger emanating from uh, from greed, from likes, uh, from dislikes. Do you notice that in your mind? Yep. Someone says something to you that you don't like, what do you do? Woof! The fires are lit. You know, get the spear out. 
you know. You're in the traffic. Someone cuts you off. What do you do? Well, you're a yogi, so you go, no, you'd be happy. <laughs> but usually it's not exactly that. You go, you jerk, <laughs> or something like that. And then you go, oh, no, you'd be happy. <laughs> but there'll be an element in the beginning of, you know, anger will arise. I'm trying to work on that one. Um, I'm a slow learner. Uh, I'm getting better. <laughs> but not all the time. <laughs> and there's many instances you know, in life that we have to deal with anger. So anger of it arises from dislikes. How do we deal with that? We observe the dislike. Or we observe the anger itself. But we have to get back to the root cause. And the root cause is because of dislikes. We don't like something, and so we react in some way to it. We feel often that uh, the situations are not to our liking. You know, I got the wrong seat in the movie. I chose the wrong wife or husband. <laughs> I, I shouldn't have had ten kids. You know, all of these things. They're stupid, I know, silly, but uh, you understand what I mean. You know, I walk into Starbucks and there's ten people in the lo- line and I have to be somewhere. Minor irritation. Still anger. Right? Their computer system was down the other day. That was a trip. <laughs> Did you know that? So silly. The whole thing was down. And people were standing there getting really angry as they're closing the door. You know, because of dislike. Some discomfort had come into their mind. When you're practicing here and you start to experience uh, the uh, difficult sensations and difficult feelings that arise in the body and in the mind, uh, do you start to get anger in the mind? Yeah? If you can't watch it, what starts to arise is anger. If only this anger would go away. Why doesn't Graham ring the bell? Yeah, he's such a horrible person. You know, if only, well, maybe I'll rush up there and ring it for him. He's probably gone, probably gone to sleep. You know, my leg's just killing me. You know, something like this. So you're directing all your anger at me, but I can handle it. Don't worry. It's all right. Uh, so anger is pervasive. And when it gets particularly large, what destruction it can bring, you know, through both our, through our thought. Starting off, this comes back to the path of purification again. Last night I talked about this, as far as the ethical behaviour. comes back to, um, you know, people getting angry, not liking any situation that's going on for them. And so it blows up into full-blown war out of this. So some little sort of minor irritation can end up being um, a world war. It's amazing, isn't it? In your meditation practice, though, when you watch the second foundation of mindfulness, which is uh, Vedana, this question came up at Anahaina today. Anahaina. The second foundation of mindfulness I haven't actually uh, got into delusion yet, but I'll do that. So remind me to come back to the three roots. Right? Um, ask the question about 
uh, how to. What was the question again, Dorothy? Something to do with the. Who was there at that today? Oh, you asked that question, didn't you? Yes. yes. What was your question again? Can you? Uh, what's the difference between sensation, and the feeling, and emotion? Oh, okay. Yes, yes. That was a very good question. Yes. In regard to the second foundation of mindfulness, which is uh, Vedana and Upasana. Now, I'll explain that in a little more detail, how, what that means. But when we are mindful of the second foundation of mindfulness and we're uh, mindful of the sensations, it's translated as being aware of sensations and feelings. Right, so two ways we can look at this. We can look at the sensations directly as they arise in the body, right, and see the arising and passing or uh, the impermanent nature directly of the sensations that arise in the body, right, because nothing lasts forever. So that painful knee, that painful shoulder, that painful whatever it happens to be, that uncomfortable situation. Uh, arises and passes away. But because of our not having uh, a sensitive awareness as yet, or a higher awareness as yet, we take it to be me or mine, as Mahasi mentioned this morning. And we relate to it, and we identify with it. What we're identifying is with the feeling, the feeling tone of the sensation, right? the feeling tone that it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral for us. And so the sensation that we're experiencing is unpleasant. So we relate to it in the mind as a feeling. I feel terrible. Something like this, in regard to that <coughs> sensation. So we can watch Vedana in two ways. Directly at the sensation level, or the feeling tone in regard to the to the uh, to the uh, uh, sensation. Now, also, that's closely related. Uh, in vipassana meditation, we're taught more to not observe the mental feelings so much in the beginning, but to observe the physical feelings more, because they're more. Um, clear to us. They arise more clearly for us. So they're easier to watch. Okay, so that's why we keep emphasizing be aware of pain, ache, tingling, pressure, etc., etc. To see the nature uh, of that particular experience. But as the awareness grows, we begin to see more clearly the feeling tone. And out of the feeling tone is how likes and likes develop. Out of the feeling tone, if we enjoy the pleasant experience, oh, I like it, so we want it to continue. If we dislike it, we want it to stop. And that brings about anger and craving for the liking, for the pleasant, and anger to get rid of the unpleasant. So that's the reason why we watch the uh, sensations, really.
Now, coming back to the, um, I've covered the, uh, in the root, um, the uh, three roots uh, of greed, uh, hatred, and Ill, Ill will and delusion. I've covered greed and how it arises, how it brings about anger, etc., etc. Uh, anger comes about because of greed. And then the third factor is uh, delusion, or not knowing. And here it means, uh, to, there's a couple of different definitions of this, or ways of explaining it. In some ways in Burma, and in the Buddha's teachings, they describe delusion as not understanding the Four Noble Truths. Not understanding the Four Noble Truths. Um, and we're going to talk about the Four Noble Truths tomorrow night. Because of not understanding the Four Noble Truths, we get caught up in the identification with what it is we are actually experiencing. We see it as being real. Where the meditator's mind, when it's advanced a lot, uh, um, uh, it's advanced to a much higher level, can begin to see uh, the true nature if you like, of this mind-body process. Everything is broken down into rapid components of datus, etc., energies. And the idea of self, of mind, me and mine, starts to drop away as we see the body dissolving and breaking up. It ends up that we experience... This is quite high, so I hope it's okay with you. But the body starts to break up, and in your meditation practice, you can experience this. So, what happens then when you've had that experience is that attachment to the body starts to dissipate, and finally, in an enlightened being, is gone forever. When that happens, uh, then the mental defilements, the kalasas, no longer arise in the mind. It's said that the mind of the Buddha or an Arahant, the fully enlightened being, there is no condition that can arise that can bring up, for example, anger in the mind or any of the unwholesome uh, mental states. Isn't that amazing? No condition through the sense doors and that can be that can come about, that can bring up these mental defilements, these uh, destructive emotions in the mind. So it's quite remarkable. So delusion can be understood through the Four Noble Truths and I think that that is probably the best way to see it. It's just not knowing the truth of things, the reality of things. Another way they put it, if we want to dive a little more deeply into... Uh, Buddhist thought. They have a term in Pali and it's called Sakyaditi or the truth of suffering. You know, so related to the Four Noble Truths, we begin to see for ourselves this First Noble Truth. You know, when you're experiencing uh, in the certain levels in your practice and you start to experience the painful nature of the body, and often you, you're often talking about this in interviews, or the painful nature of the mind. What you are experiencing here, and why we ask you to steadfastly stay with it, 
without trying to move away from it, is to bring the mind to a state that can understand sakiditi, the truth of suffering, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, if you like, of the human condition. And so we'll start to let go, we'll lose our sense of attachments to things. Uh, this sort of running around the whole day after this and after that. So that comes in as one of the insights in practice. And when you have that insight, it reduces uh, the craving and attachment in the mind. And it's uh, really uh, getting up there to the beginning, really, of vipassana practice. And when you can start to experience dukkha satcha, and also and you start to experience one more insight, which is anicca. And when you start to experience fully within the body and within the mind the rapid nature of change which comes about in the practice, and then you're really on the road to vipassana, uh, on, on, the, um, yeah, on the path. So it's something to go for. And how does then that how does that then relate to how you are in the world? You know that's always an interesting question for me. You know, you often hear that people say, "Oh yes, I know I've experienced this and I've experienced that, and I have no feeling for the world anymore." You know, I feel very detached from the world. I can't live in the world anymore. And for certain people uh, that's the time when they will, at certain stages of enlightenment, they will um, go off to the monastery or something like this or find a very quiet living space. But generally speaking, my view is that one should, if one can, as much as possible, and I think the Buddha was somewhat like this. He didn't want to be, but it ended up being that way for him. Live in the world and see what it's like to see if you can live in the world with non-attachment. You know, see if you can live in the world with a tranquil mind. See if you can live in the world with a peaceful mind. I've known many meditators that in actual fact what's happened to them is they've developed strong aversion to the world. And I don't believe that that's the case. When you look at someone like Mahasi, the Dalai Lama, all of these people, what's their main message? You know, their main message is to be happy. You know, the Dalai, and to have compassion. So the Dalai Lama is always talking about compassion for oneself and for other people. He's not hiding away in the world, in the cave, is he? You know, he's out there in the world and he's teaching the Dhamma. You know, maybe he has inklings that he doesn't want to do that, but he still keeps doing it, out of compassion for the world. So, to my mind, way of thinking, when I see someone like him or the Burmese Sidors, the Burmese Sidors are tireless, tireless in their efforts of I have never seen them work. You know, they work. They're like coal miners, you know. <laughs> Honestly, they're, you know, 
Some of you will know some of these cycles. They never rest. Hardly ever. Because their mind is already resting. You see what I'm trying to say? Their mind doesn't get tired. Sadhuru Lakana, who's been here many times, he was one of the preeminent Burmese Sadhus that just uh, died recently. But, you know, I spent a lot of time with him. And he came to Australia and a lot of time in Burma. And I never saw him tired. He was 80 when he died. And he'd come here. And I'd be absolutely exhausted looking after him and driving him around. And he'd be, he'd be up there. You know, what's the next thing? You know, what's the next Dharma talk? Actually, I feel a little like him tonight. <laughs> and I thought it was really remarkable. You know, and a number of the other sidles, they just cruise around doing all these things. The Dalai Lama does the same. Talking about the Dharma, talking about freeing the mind. Uh, talking about putting an end to suffering in the mind and trying to show people how to actually do that. And they don't get tired. I rarely saw Saido or Lakana even look tired. You know, when I was 20 years younger, you know, collapsing, and he was, he was chugging along there. Their minds. The mind is... Their minds are... I was trying to figure out why. And then I discovered that their minds were very peaceful. Their minds were very peaceful. They had great concentration of mind. And so they were at rest, moving around the world. They weren't hiding in a cave, but their minds weren't moving their minds weren't moving. You know, they could cruise everywhere and their minds were moving, or if they were moving, very little. So their minds were at rest. And when I thought about this, and uh, I was most um, encouraged. It wasn't that they were physical specimens of any uh, repute. You know, they didn't do yoga, they didn't do weightlifting, they didn't do <laughs> So then I took side or not this side or another side or to look at surfing one day. It was well uh, actually every day is in Hawaii I take him because <laughs> I wanted to look at it, right? Down at Magic Island. Oh Saido, would you like a walk? Oh sure. <laughs> well let's go to Magic Island. <laughs> oh he loved Magic Island and so did I. And uh, I look at the surfing, and he, you know, just cruise around the park. He said, oh, "I'm getting exercise today." Yes, I do. <laughs> he was a trip, I can tell you. Now I've lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Oh yes, yes, yeah. Okay, Sido, Sido, look at this. And I was, uh, you know, a real uh, gung ho having a real gung-ho surfing mind. So I was getting excited. Someone just got a barrel and, you know, and all the rest of it. Yeah, you know. I said, Sider, look at that. And he said, how long did that take? Ten <laughs> seconds? He said, oh, very tiring. <laughs> battle out there, battle back. Why would you want to do that? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yes, Sider. <laughs> he said... <laughs> Better to observe the mind, he said. <laughs> he said, yes, 
Fido, F Fido. <laughs> but safely I'm still. Yeah. Is that Sayyidah Ulakna? Pardon? Is that Sayyidah Ulakna? Yeah. It is a funny one. Yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't really interested in serving. <laughs> so I kind of wrote him off the visiting list. <laughs> no, he was a beautiful. Yeah. Good, very good Dharma and beautiful mind. And Saida Upandita, Saida, yeah, I don't know if this is boring for you, but they were real masters and they really presented uh, the Dharma to the West. Saida Upandita is over 90 now and still travels around the world teaching long retreats. It's amazing. And his energy is remarkable. He can go in there and do a 30 day retreat and give a talk every night. It's amazing to me. So when the mind becomes restful through practicing mindfulness meditation and uh, cultivating our awareness, uh, then the mind can live in the world very easily, but not be attached to the world. That's the difference. Because when the mind is at peace, restful, it doesn't cling to things. It doesn't crave after things. There's a great story from the time of the Buddha where the Buddha is walking past with his entourage of monks, um, a lute player. And it was absolutely, well, it wasn't a lute, it was something else. I think I can't remember exactly the story, but let's say it was a lute. And he's walking past in India, uh, this lute player. And he walked past and he turned around and he said, That's very beautiful. Apparently he said this. And then his monks chastised him in some way. Or oh, aren't you being attached to that sound? He said, no, I let it go the moment it was over. And I really like that, you know, that story, because it's how we can live in the world. It's not to say that we can't live on the level of the household life, but do we need to be attached to it? Right? And I don't think it's good in the meditative world to build up disrespect and resentment against the world. You know, we need to be here, we need to offer what we can to the world, and we need to bring about uh, change and help as much as we can in the world, but we need to do it with a mind that's at peace and not with uh, a mind that's angry uh, or resentful about things. This kind of thing is what I'm seeing more and more in these great masters, such as the Dalai Lama, etc., and many others. But that's how they're being in the world. And that's what I think is a good way to, a good um, aspiration. You know, there's a, oh, I should get into Shantideva, but I won't tonight. Shantideva, I'll give you a little Shantideva. Some of you will know about Shantideva. He was an 8th century monk in Nalanda, India. And uh, this is a story from the uh, Tibetan tradition. At that time in India, uh, this university was set up in um, Nalanda, which is not far from Gaya in northern India. And it was the preeminent university, 10,000 monks, came to this place to study. And in this day and age, of course, the Indian Archaeological Society has 
to some degree renovated it and you can see all the classrooms and lecture rooms and it's amazing. Um, I love going to this place. And um, so the monks were all there, monks and nuns were all there, 10,000 of them, and they were studying the Buddha Dharma. But there was this one monk and his name was Shantideva. Now Shantideva, as it happens, uh, was a contemporary of the uh, Buddha, similar. Oh no, was he not a contemporary of the Buddha? That's the wrong thing. He came, uh, similar to the Buddha in that he came from a very wealthy family and he was um, designated to be the next king. But he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to take on the job. So he wanted to go to the university and study. So he came to Nalanda and he studied. Although the other monks there didn't think he was studying. They thought he was absolutely hopeless. You know, he came and told no one of his upbringing. He wore rags, you know, just very simple robes. And he stayed in his room all the time. He didn't come out of his room. And apparently they were giving him a really hard time. You know, it was very naughty of them, but they were saying, oh, he's a lazy monk, he's a hopeless monk, you know, what's he doing here, why don't they kick him out, etc., etc. Each year, uh, as happens these days at university, I guess, the monk has to give a presentation about what he's learned throughout the uh, year or at the end of his uh, degree, if you like. And when you go to Nalanda, you can see the stone thrones uh, where they used to sit, you know, they've renovated them, and it's really exotic, it's amazing. They used to have like oil lamps, and they'd glow in the dark, and it must have been fabulous to see. I like that stuff. Shanti Deva sits down on the seat, and all the monks are laughing, they're pointing, digging themselves in the side, going, "Ah, oh, look at him, Shanti Deva, he's so hopeless. This is going to be a laugh, you know, you make a complete fool of himself." He sat down on the seat and started giving the teaching. And this is called the way of the Bodhisattva. And there are a number of steps which I won't go into now. While he was giving this lecture, suddenly everyone went completely quiet. It was so awesome. He just what he spoke about, because in those days they used to sort of deliver everything in prose. So in short, um, what they called in poetry, stanzas, if you like. The first one of these teachings that he gave, oh, and as he was giving the teachings, and this is the most exciting part, this one really blows me away, he started to rise up off the cushion, like this, number one. <laughs> this far, number two, this far. Suddenly, number, I forget how many, eight I think, no, six, six. Oh, I don't know, that's not right. I can't quite remember. I'm tired. But it goes up, he went up and up and up apparently. Suddenly he's outside the temple. But his voice was still clear. They could still hear him and they're all looking up. And it said that he came back down after his presentation and he got up off the seat and walked out and never came back again. And they had to chase him to get the teachings. He'd been sitting in his cave, his little kuti, 
Stone Kuti, dwelling on the Buddha's teachings and practicing the Buddha's teachings and obviously attaining to great heights of meditation experience and coming up with this way of presentation. Fabulous. I love that story. Can you give us a demonstration of that? Tomorrow. I'm a little tired tonight. Um, Unfortunately, not like Sadhura Lakana and Shantideva. Maybe tomorrow, if you're good. The first of his teachings, though, I'll just give you one, was aspiration. And this is really pertinent. Without aspiration for coming out of suffering, without aspiration to rid the mind of the root causes of suffering, the greed, hatred and delusion, there's no way we'll be able to do it. Shantideva, I don't have the book here to read you the passage, but if I could I would love to do that. I forgot to bring it. But it's said that, he said that, one has to have the willingness or put in the mind the aspiration for enlightenment. The aspiration for enlightenment, which I equate on an ordinary everyday level to be a better person, to have a mind that is not uh, running around all day with greed, hatred and delusion. So we aspire to that and we put this affirmation into the mind, may I be able to. And I love that aspiration. So for all of us here, this is a tricky path. It's not an easy path. If you want to go further within the path and experience the higher levels of happiness, uh, higher than the household level, um, and attain to some genuine level of happiness which is not determined by conditions, not determined by the ups and downs of life situations, not blown around by the wind and the storms. Um, So we need this aspiration. Um, Even if it's for lifetimes to come. I mentioned in one of the interviews my... um, that's what I was telling uh, Bliss, you know, you'd be very good next life, you know. But my Thai abbot, when I was a monk, I'd be running off around India doing meditation course after meditation course after meditation course. God, so many meditation courses. And he said, what's your hurry? Many lifetimes. <laughs> you know, he had a very Thai attitude to things. You know, sabai, sabai, everyone's happy, don't worry. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, but I didn't believe him at that time, and I kept running off after all these retreats. Burma, they have a little bit different attitude. The times are slightly more, more relaxed. <laughs> but still, the aspiration that we put into our mind, uh, even if it may not come to fruition, until some later date. Even now, there will be some fruit from that that aspiration. Even in this retreat here, and the next moment when you go out into the world, because you'll have it in your mind, you know, may I attain to a higher state. And so when you're living in the world, you'll try to act 
speak and behave differently because you want to purify the mind. So I think it's really important on a spiritual level to have this aspiration in the mind. One more story. And then we're supposed to be having a question and answer tonight. <laughs> Didn't get to it again. Uh, my One of my main teachers, and Tan and Suns and many others, was this... Um, Buddha-like monk in Burma called Saido Ukundala and he died at 90 a couple of years ago but um, I was there uh, not for long periods of time but often for short periods of time and practiced under him and um, he was a very uh, gentle person and a very um, encouraging teacher but very relaxed in his approach, but wanting the best for you all the time. Um, there were two stories I wanted to tell you about him. Um, one day, uh, I was offering dana to him, as you do in Burma, you offer food to the monks, or you offer some um, you know, financial support for his requisites, or the requisites of the temple, and you hand the money, if you like, or the food, whichever, to the monk like this. You're kneeling down. He's often sitting cross-legged on a throne-type thing or just on the ground. And you'll hand him the money and he'll hold a piece of paper or something that the money's on. And he'll chant something. But before... And he'll chant this chant, which is a blessing for you. And uh, it feels very nice very nice. But on this occasion he said to me, he said, Graham, whenever you offer something, please make an, asp an affirmation or have an aspiration in the mind for your own enlightenment. So you would say, by this offering, may I attain to the highest liberation. May I attain to the highest liberation so I can help all beings. And that's the way you offer dana. People don't often think about what they're doing when they offer dana. But it's for your benefit when you offer dana. And I've noticed how that benefit has come through in my own life on many occasions. The second thing he was talking about, mindfulness. And one day... One of the times I was there, uh, my friend and I were um, leaving the centre, so we were going to pay respects to Sidor. There was a room full of people, about this many people, they had like a, a reception room, and people would come in the morning to hear Sidor chant and offer dana and do all the things that the Buddhists do in Burma. You know, they're very, uh, you know, they love all that stuff, you know. And it's a very nice place to be when this is happening. So I waited up the back and um, suddenly, after about 10 minutes, the offering stopped and Sidor called me down. And uh, he said, oh, you're leaving now? Yes, Sidor. Through the translator. Yes, Sidor. Going back to Australia, he said, Graham, I said, yes, Sidor. Because he spoke very quietly. He said, mindfulness. He's, no, he said, noting. It's the highest form of happiness.
<laughs> Mindfulness or noting is the highest form of happiness. That's what he said. And his face was just glowing. You know, and I was in tears, of course, you know, just about. <laughs> but it was beautiful. But the wisdom of those words have stuck with me all these times. The highest form of happiness is in the noting. So when I ask you, and Mahasi Sayadaw uh, this morning, please try to note each and every phenomena that comes into the consciousness that you become aware of. This is actually the highest form of happiness, or will become the highest form of happiness. So on that note, uh, I'd like to finish the Dharma talk for tonight. So thank you for listening. Like and dislike? (laughs) Who reacted? Please try harder. That's what Saida would also. Oh no, with Saida Ripandidi used to say, please try harder all the time. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.